0: Well, this morning our text is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to get all of the verses covered this morning. I'm going to kind of cover the front half of it, but I'm going to read the entire text this morning as we talk on the topic of family care. How do we care for each other within the body of Christ? So hear Paul's words. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one uh, who teaches, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to To everyone, all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Well, missionary E. Stanley Jones tells the story of a time in which he was serving in uh, India. He was in this Christian community, and they're living there. And in this Christian community, they came to the collective idea that they were going to give the servants one day off a week. And this Christian community was going to fulfill their role within being the servant. One of the roles they had to fulfill is what they called a sweeper, or what we would call a janitor. As you can imagine, not many people were interested to serve in this role. This role in their culture was reserved for the lowest of lows. It was reserved for the outcasts, the untouchables, and partly because one of the roles within this being a janitor is they had to clean the toilet, and a toilet that did not flush in this region. So East Stanley Jones and all this missionary community or this Christian community they begin to serve and take over this role that's one day a week and what East Stanley Jones realized though is there was this recent kind of Hindu convert that came to Christianity but he wasn't signing up for the janitor position. So East Stanley Jones went to him and he says, "Sir, I notice you haven't signed up for this position. When will you begin to sign up for this janitor position?" And without skipping a beat, the man replied, Brother Stanley, I am converted, but I'm not converted that far. I'm converted, but I'm not converted that far. It's a humorous comment in some ways, but it also is a little scary. Because I think we, we realize there is this spirit within us that we kind of say the same things sometimes. Yes, I'm converted, but I'm not converted to do that. And yet, I think we begin to live with this idea that we are the ones who get to pick and choose what commands that we want to obey. So the easy ones, the ones that are convenient, the ones that follow our agenda, we say yes and amen to but the ones who are difficult, the commands that come at a cost, our response to those are, yes, we're converted, but we're not converted that far. But but the question we ask is, what kind of conversion is a conversion that says, yes, we're converted, but not that far? I want to suggest to you, that's no conversion at all. Because what it does is it it allows us to still be in the driver's seat of our faith if we get to decide what what kind of conversion we have and how far that goes, or we get to decide what what commands we want to obey, what commands we don't. It means that, that God's not in control of our life, but it means that we're still in control of our life. And I think many of us are comfortable with this type of conversion because it's a safe conversion. A conversion, again, that allows us to be in the driver's seat of our life, it's a conversion that says, yes, I will follow you, Jesus, as long as it's convenient, easy, and it fits into my lifestyle. And yet notice what's happening there, though. If I'm saying I'm going to submit to God, but submit to God, but not in this occasion, it means that you are in control of your life, still in all things, because you're the one who decides when you submit and when you don't submit, so there really is no submission taking place at all. You see, Paul is going to point us to a different type of conversion this morning. He's going to tell us about a conversion in which that that we're not in the driver's seat of our life anymore, but Jesus is fully in the driver's seat. And the way he's going to explain it is it's it's not our flesh who is leading us, but it's the Holy Spirit that now directs our steps so that we can say fully that we will be obedient to you in all things. And all things even when it comes at a great cost. In fact, Paul's point this morning is this: that if we are going to find ourselves being a spirit-filled church, if we're gonna find ourselves where the gospel takes root. One of the evidence of that reality is that we are going to care for each other, love each other, even when it comes at a cost to ourselves. This morning, again, I do want to talk to you on the topic of what family care is all about. But us, for us to even gain kind of what Paul is saying in chapter 6, we have to understand kind of where he began in the letter of Galatians. So let me just tell you very quickly... What was his purpose in writing this letter? We understand that Paul is writing to the Galatian church. And he's writing to the Galatian church is because there was this Christian cult that began to kind of infiltrate this church and they began to come up with a false gospel. This group was called the Judaizers. Judaizers came up with this belief. They would look at the Galatian church and say, Galatian church, do you really want to be saved? then yes, if you really want to be saved, then yes, hold on to Jesus over here. But what you really need to do is connect yourself to ethnic Israel. And the way you're going to connect yourself to ethnic Israel is by following the Torah, or more specifically, being circumcised. And what we notice is as soon as this false gospel begins to infiltrate into the church, what we see Paul's response is his response is using some of the most graphic and strongest language we find within the New Testament. He is adamant that these are false teachers. And you might be thinking, what's the big deal, Paul? Paul, don't, don't they hold on to Jesus in one hand? Isn't that good enough? But yet, what's the big deal if they hold on to something else in the other? But what you need to understand is what Paul is trying to get across is if you're really holding on to Jesus and then something else, to saying that this is how what leads to salvation, what you're really telling Jesus Whatever that might be, if it's Jesus plus anything, if it's Jesus plus going to this certain church to be saved, or if it's Jesus plus, i got to pray this amount of times, you're saying, Jesus, thank you for the blood, but it wasn't enough. Then Thank you for giving your life on my behalf, but I don't think it was enough, so I have to do this extra thing. And in this case, the Judaizers were pushing forward circumcision. Jesus plus doing this equals salvation. And Paul adamantly tells us very clearly in this letter that it's never Jesus plus anything else, but it's only Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus alone. This is what justifies us. It is Jesus. Jesus alone. So yes, we see him using some of the most graphic language within the New Testament because he is convinced that these people are pushing in this false gospel. And this false gospel was beginning to lead his people astray. In fact, we see him saying in, in chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul writes this, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on just to make sure we didn't miss his point. He says, by the works of the law, no one, no one will be justified. Again, the way that we are justified, declared righteous in God's sight is only because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's never based on our own works. And if we ever say Jesus plus anything else, what you're literally saying is Jesus wasn't enough. And yet so we see Paul have every reason to be upset because he's talking to these Judaizers and they were bringing in this false gospel and this false gospel was leading people to hell. So he's animated because he's for trying to protect the eternity of his people. And the way he's going to do that as we understand now why he's writing, his main purpose in this letter is to prove that he has the true gospel. So he's trying to convince his church why he has the true gospel and why it's different than the Judaizers' gospel. And he does that in three main ways. Chapter 1 and 2, the reason he says his gospel is true is because his gospel was given to him by Jesus himself on that road of Damascus. And not only was it given by Jesus himself, but it was approved by the other apostles. Pretty convincing. Then he goes on to his second point in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians. And his point there is his his gospel is superior because it points to, to a connection, sonship through Abraham through faith and not by works. And why is that superior? Because if you look at the Old Testament, Paul says, hey, look at what takes place. Genesis chapter 15, it is said that, that Abraham believed in God and it was declared to him justified. He was justified in that moment, but it's not until Genesis chapter 17 in which Abraham is circumcised, which means even in the Old Testament, faith precedes works. But then it's in chapters 5 and 6 that I believe he comes to the pinnacle of his argument. In this argument, what he's really saying is, hey, I need you to see this church, Galatian church, the the reason I have a superior gospel is because my gospel is the only gospel that is able to deliver you from sin. And how is he going to prove that? He points to community. He says, just look at the difference of community. Look at a gospel-centered community, and what you will see there is the fruit of the Spirit. The end of Galatians chapter 5. But then he says, hey, look at a church that is driven by the law. Look at a church that that this Judaizers kind of gospel takes root, that it has to be salvation, and yes, Jesus plus this other type of work. And what does it lead to? It leads to competition. It leads to jealousy. It leads to strife. And then in chapter 6, where we find ourselves in, he points once again to community. He says, Galatian church, you really want to see what a spirit-led community looks like? One of the evidence is the church's care for each other. This is literally what he's saying. He's saying, church, do you want to see the evidence that this is the true gospel? Look at the church of Jesus Christ. Look at how the gospel takes root and notice how the church begins to care for each other. What does this care look like? well, he's going to explain it in two different ways. There's three ways in the text, but I only got time for two, so we're not going to reach the third, but he's going to tell you two. The two we're covering this morning is this. The way that we care, the evidence of the gospel taking root and the way we care for each other is, is first this idea of confronting others that we're stuck and trapped in sin, gently pointing them back to Jesus Christ. Second truth is We're bearing each other burdens for each other. And the third one, the one we're not reaching, is doing good for all people, specifically the household of God. But notice this first area, this first idea of being willing to be a spirit-filled community that one embraces gentle restoration. This is the main reason of how we're able to care for each other is what Paul is saying in this passage. And I, I think sometimes we don't necessarily equate that with a loving community. But notice the alternative if we just look back a couple of verses in chapter 5, verse 26, notice what Paul says. He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And the question you see or what we need to notice is what he's doing again. He's comparing a legalistic culture to a gospel-centered culture. He's saying a legalistic culture is always going to lead to this idea of provoking one another, envying one another. A community is led by, marked by one-upmanship and competition. And the question we need to ask is why? Why does this legalistic culture or a law-based society always lead to this one-upmanship or this jealousy and this strife? Well, I like what one author says. He says, legalism always leads to a staring problem. What does that mean? That means in a work-based system, I'm always looking over my shoulder, Because if the way that I am called to to gain my salvation is by my own works, I'm always asking the question, how many works? How many times do I have to pray today to be saved? How many times do I have to go share my faith to to be able to gain God's assurance of salvation? And the question is, you never know. So what do you do in this society? You look over your shoulder, you begin to stare at other people, and you say, well, that person's praying two times a day. I'm praying five, so I'm, I'm doing pretty good. I I think I can be assured of my salvation simply by looking at other people. So in a law-based society, what happens is I begin to look at what everybody else is is doing and then I base my justification off of somebody else's works. As long as I'm beating so-and-so, I feel pretty good about myself. Paul's going to point us to the gospel and he's saying that's not how the gospel works. I have nothing to boast in because my justification came through Christ and Christ alone. But notice the point of being able to confront people in their sin. In a law-based society, you're not going to want to confront anybody in their sin or correct them or restore them. You you might want to, to, to confront a whole bunch of people, but you don't want to do the latter part of restoring. Why? Because you feel good about yourself when other people are down. And you notice the Pharisees. What do they do? They never want to restore people. They just want to point at everybody else's faults so that they can feel better about their own justification. Do you see? So he points us to a different way. He points us to verse 1. Look at it again in chapter 6. Brothers, brothers. if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, catch it, should restore him same word that's used to to be able to fix a fishing net fix it restore him in a spirit of gentleness then it says keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted and let me tell you this is incredibly hard on both sides incredibly hard to be the one who corrects and incredibly hard to be the one who gets corrected but notice how he softens the blow by the language he uses he uses familial language language of the family Verse 1, he uses brothers. Verse 10, he calls the household of God. So he creates what's called inclusio or bookends to book in verses 1 through 10 with using familiar language. He does that on purpose because he needs to us to understand this is what the church is it's a family. And what do families do? They gently restore. So he looks at the church and he's saying, Church, I need you to begin to act like a father would with his teenager son, gently restoring him when he gets out of line or or what, what a mother does with their toddler, they gently restore. He says, those within the church, brothers and sisters, you begin to interact with each other and you begin to help restore people who are caught up in sin. This is important because what Paul is going to point to again is the evidence of the Holy Spirit among us is this willingness to gently restore. He says, this is the evidence of the gospel taking root, which is vastly important in our culture, right? Because our culture says the exact opposite. You leave somebody to do what they choose to please. In fact, don't confront them. In fact, the very worst thing you can do in our culture is tell somebody they're wrong or point them back to an absolute truth. No, this is who their identity is, so let them live out their identity. But Paul tells us a different story. He says, there is a standard, which is the, the scriptures. And he says when those who are not seeing the scriptures correctly, he says point them back. Let them see what the scriptures actually say. In fact, you see this in Galatians chapter 2. We understand in Galatians chapter 2, what does Paul do with Peter? Peter is, first of all, he comes in and he's hanging out with the Gentiles and the Jews. And he's having a good old time. He's eating at the barbecues with the Gentiles in the church And he's having fun. But then there's word that these Judaizers or people from Jerusalem are coming to him. So what does he begin to do? He steps back. He says, I'm not eating with the Gentiles anymore. Of being scared of offending those in Jerusalem. And Paul comes to him and he says, hey Peter, you're you're acting out of line of the gospel. And he calls and restores him to understand that what the gospel calls us to do is love all people. Yes, Gentiles and Jews alike are able to now come to the cross and gain salvation. So he calls us to be able to restore each other. But what we need to do is we need to couple this passage with a passage found in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Because we can't just read one text and then begin to believe that we need to be the confrontation police in which we confront all people. But notice what 1 Peter 4, verse 8 says says, above all else, you keep earnestly loving each other. And then he says, because love covers a multitude of sin. Keep earnestly loving each other. Why? Because in the family of God, on a daily basis, we will offend each other. We're family. This is what families do. They step on each other's toes. In in your own family, you probably wake up even this morning. You probably offended the other person, your spouse, or your children offended you or something, but but love covers a multitude of sin. So in essence, what he's saying here is there's going to be people in the family of God who's going to to do things that hurt you or harm you, and what do you do? You love them. You forgive them. You give grace. You don't need to be the confrontation police on every offense against you. Somebody walks by you in the hall and simply forgets to wave to you, they probably just had to go to the bathroom. Give them grace. Love them well. But when do we confront? Well, I think the word that we should look at in Galatians chapter 1 is the word of being caught. It's a lifestyle. They're caught in this transgression. As we look at the overall picture of their life, it's not a one-time act. But now we see a habit being created. And when we see a habit being created, it's here that we need to to gently confront, to go to them and persuade them to look back. And we do this also in a humble fashion, because if you just look in verse 1, notice what he says at the end. We do this humbly, understanding that that the person we're confronting, we could be right there in their same shoes, because we're sinners too, and we're susceptible to the same sin. So he says, hey, be careful when you do this, lest you fall. In other words, be humble, because you could be in that same position where that person is. You See what Paul's saying? He's saying, be willing to point people. In the contest of this passage, as he's speaking about the gospel, I really do think it's doctrine, as well as it's behavior, because he just got done in chapter 5 talking about behavior. But I do believe it's both. When we begin to look at a lifestyle, somebody caught in the transgression, this is when the church steps in. And if you look at how the church is supposed to to, to work, should never get to the leadership of the church, but rather the people within the church should be able to to confront and gently point back to the scriptures. When you notice somebody missing for a couple weeks, what do you do? Just give them a call, encourage them to come back. This is what the family of God does this is what the family looks like secondly not only are we called to to be able to to gently point and restore those who are caught up in sin and and again I think it's what's helpful if you kind of look at it in the movie kind of picture you just don't want one clip of one person's life if this this one clip they have this this outburst it's just a clip we don't we, we can just overlook that but if the whole movie of their life's beginning to look like in a, 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 something that's not healthy or out of line that's when we step in but now he calls us to do something else which is which is which is surprising in some ways he says in verse 2 bear one another's burdens and so to fulfill the law of christ which he just got done is saying is love bear one another's burdens so to fulfill the law of christ which is love Again, this, this verse makes perfectly good sense if we see the church as a family, right? Because families, they bear each other's loads. But I think in our Western culture, we don't view the church like a family, so therefore somebody else's load across the room, you're like, I have nothing to, I, I don't want anything to do with that. And again, this comes at a cost. It's, it's, there's a weight that's actually put upon ourselves. Other people's burdens... They're messy, they're heavy, they're full of drama, and we want nothing to do with them. But notice the picture he paints. Here's the picture. He says, I need you to bear somebody else's burdens. And the picture we need to pick is like this 100-pound weight on somebody's shoulders that's sitting across in the other side of the room. This person, that burden could be a whole bunch of things. It can be a financial burden. It could be a burden with the family, with their children. They just need help. It could be a a, a health burden. It could be an emotional burden. So it has this 100-pound weight on them. And what Paul is saying is, I I need you to go over there and help them carry it. And as soon as you help somebody carry a 100-pound weight, guess what happens to you? There's a weight upon your own shoulders that now you begin to, to carry. Here's our problem, though. God says, I need you to carry that burden, but what's our normal response? Our normal response is, I'm converted, but I'm not converted that far. We got all a bunch of excuses to to come up with, right? Our own emotional health. We come up with the idea that, man, we we got our own burdens. Why are we going to carry anybody else's burden? We, We think of the story, well, Shouldn't they just learn to carry? Isn't it just discipleship that teach them to carry their own burden and we want nothing to do with it? Or maybe we just say we're too busy for that. But this is where Jonathan Edwards' words become so powerful. Jonathan Edwards, he writes this paper, and in this paper he's trying to to correct all the objections of giving to the poor. So in the context, he's he's writing to people who are objecting to giving to the poor. And notice what he says. He first writes the objection, and he says this. Here's the objection that people come up with. I would love to help the poor, but I can't afford it. And listen to Jonathan Edwards' response. Edwards writes, If we're never obligated to relieve other burdens, except when we can do it without burdening ourselves, how can we follow this verse? How do we bear our neighbor's burdens when we are not willing to bear any burden at all? Tim Keller would add to that. Tim Keller's words are fitting. He says, you know what we're really saying when we say we can't afford to help someone? Tim Keller says, when we say we we can't help to afford someone, what we're really saying is we can't afford to burden ourselves. And yet Tim Keller says, is that not the point of this passage? It's not the point of the passage to burden yourself. To take some of that weight even when it comes at a cost. See, this is what the church has been doing since the very beginning. You want to see the sign of the Holy Spirit amongst your midst? It's when the church begins to take this and live this out. In fact, I'm reminded of 250 A.D. In which... There was this plague in the Greco-Roman world in which it came in, and as this plague came in, they were reminded of a plague that just came a century earlier that killed off one third of the population. So you can imagine as you're hearing this plague coming into your city, and you just realize a plague came before and it killed one third of the people, they begin to freak out. Those who could afford it left the city, moved to the uh, the countryside. Those who could not afford it were stuck in the city. What they noticed in this Greco-Roman world, though, is as they went to the temples within the city, the priests had disappeared. They were like, we're out of here. We don't want to deal with this. Those who had loved ones who fell sick, they forced them out on the streets. And yet the church came in and said, that's not right. So they began to bear the burden of those who were sick. They took them into their own house. They began to nurse them. Historians believe that the church, because the church was willing to bear this burden, they lowered the the death rate by over two-thirds. But historians also note that as the church began to care for those who were sick, many within the church ended up dying as well. They were willing to bear the other person's burdens to the point in which they suffered to death. And you might think, that's crazy. That doesn't make sense. Until you realize our master did the same thing. Our Savior came, and he bore our burden of our sin to the point in which it took his life. And in this passage, saying, what is What is the Holy Spirit's evidence among you? It's your willingness to not only confront sin, to restore those who are stuck in sin, but secondly, to bear each other's burdens. When we're sick, we're called to care for those who are sick. When we see those who are hungry, we're called to feed them. When we, when we see those who are in distress, we're called to care for them. When we see those who have a burden, we're called to help them carry that burden as well. And what's so interesting in this passage is he begins to kind of disclose how this looks, specifically as you help me carry my own burden. In fact, I love this verse found in verse 6. Hey, your pastor, the one who teaches you, carry his financial burden and i love it because what he's really saying is there's value in the teaching of god's word so much value that paul says i need you to to be able to support the the pastors who are teaching so that they can be able to disciple you and help you and not have that burden but then he begins to give us a warning in verses three and four He gives a warning because as you're beginning to carry each other's burdens and you're restoring people uh, from sin and and helping them come see Jesus, there is this sense that maybe pride seeks in. But notice what he says in verses 3 through 5. Paul writes, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And he says, But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. There's a lot of debate what that means, but I simply think what Paul is saying in this passage is don't don't get so prideful that you begin to think you're something, when in reality, the church creates equal ground. We're all people who have the same need grace. We're justified by what Christ did in us, we have no reason to boast. So he's saying, find your satisfaction in in the load God has given you to carry. Don't look at other people's load. You look at what God has placed upon you. And yet, as you look at this idea of carrying each other's burdens, I really think our church really does a good job in this. And on a weekly basis, there's people who have large families and they're cooking for other families even though they've got to feed their own family. And, and there's families who care for children even though they've got a whole ton of children themselves. And, and there's men who come out and do yard work even though their schedule is busy. There is, this church really exemplifies this passage. Which should be put a smile on our face because it's, it is evidence that the gospel is taking root in this place. It's evidence that the Spirit is working amongst us. In fact, I'm reminded of Tony Morito, in which he speaks of this story about this New York pastor. One of the members came up to him in this New York church and the member said to the pastor, he says, man, pastor, wouldn't it be great if God just began to show up and showed off miracles and signs again? Man, I just want to see God at work. I want to see signs and miracles to really testify that God is here. pastor turned to this member and said, pointed to somebody across the room and said you see that lady over there she was just evicted from her apartment this week and she has three children she said i I, the pastor said i would consider it a sign and a miracle that god is in our midst if you would be willing to take in this woman and her children and house them for three months but what he's saying really is the essence of this passage you want to see signs and wonders amongst us It's when the Holy Spirit moves in your life to carry somebody else's burden, even when it comes at a cost to yourself. That's not natural. That's a sign of the Spirit at work. So Paul turns to us in this passage, and then he ends with this passage of doing good for all people. The reason I didn't cover that is we're gonna come back to this, what that idea looks like as we begin to love our community as well. But he says, especially amongst the household of faith, the family, care for each other, do good for each other. You see, every single day, we're struck with two options. Do I live for myself? Do I serve myself? Do I live for the purpose of trying to reach my own goals and my own dreams and my own passions? Or do I live for Christ? And as I live for Christ, then it begins to to orient my life for other people that I begin to come into this room thinking, who can I serve this morning? Who who can I encourage with a word of encouragement? Who can I love? Who can I show mercy and grace to? Who, Who can I put my arm around them and say, yes, I love you and I want to be here for your support? Paul says it's the latter that shows the evidence of the gospel in your life. The gospel moves us away from selfishness and moves us to fulfill the law of Christ, a love for our neighbor. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for passages like this. I'm thankful for Paul and even his passion and how he writes. God, would we catch his passion? Would we catch his passion for gospel centrality in our lives? That we would put Jesus up and lift him high? Would we catch his passion and his love for all people? His willingness to give his own life, suffer for the sake of the gospel as he preaches it to his church? Would you give us a passion of Christ-like love in all things, a passion for the bride of Christ, that we would see the importance of the local church, that we'd give our lives more fully to the local church, because it's a local church who has been called to proclaim the gospel to the world. So would you strengthen your church this morning? Would you encourage your church this morning? Would you allow your church to feel your endless love? We pray these things in your son's name.